Grab your Bible and turn with me to Romans chapter 9. Well, we made it. We made it through Romans 9 through 11. And I am proud of us. I I really am, mostly because I didn't receive not one angry email. But also because uh, this is some heavy stuff. We've been wading through some rough waters, but we have reached the shore. And we have now the sand between our toes. We're about to go on and finish this incredible book of Romans. But first, we need to look back on where we've been. Because here's the question. Do you really know what Romans 9 through 11 is about? You've heard several sermons on it. Some good, some average, some, well, need a bit more work. But do we understand Paul's point in this section? And if we know what it's about, do we know how it should affect our day-to-day lives? I mean, when we get out of bed on Monday morning and our feet hit the carpet, does Romans 9, 10, and 11 have any bearing on the way we live? This is why we've included in this series messages called summary messages. We want to take what has come before and we want to tie a big bow on it. We want to make sure we see the big picture and the overarching point and purpose of this letter. Because let's remember, this is a letter written in the first century. Do you know that when Paul originally wrote this, he did not put chapters or verses or those nice, helpful headings in it. This was just one big, long letter from Paul with a carefully crafted and cohesive argument to a specific group of people in Rome in the first century. And he wrote it in such a way that everything kind of ties together and builds upon itself to make one big point. Do you remember the one big point of Romans? If I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times, I'll say it again. The big idea, the central point, the one thing Paul is going on and on about in this letter is simply the gospel. It's the gospel, the good news that Jesus saves And Paul wanted to lay it out in all its fullness with all its glory and all its implications. He wanted this early church to see the beauty of this message it had believed, but that they were still learning about and learning to live out. The same is true of us today. Listen, we cannot ever get over or get past the gospel. It's not like this is the elementary stuff and then we move on and we go to something deeper. No, we need to go deeper into the gospel so that we absorb more of this into our heart and lives. We see the big idea of this letter in the thesis statement of the book, the key verse. You remember it? Romans 1.16 says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, I learned that verse initially back when I was in Awana. How many of you guys did Awana as a kid? You remember learning Romans 1.16? I've known this verse a long time, and I always thought, man, this is a great verse. This is really good, but what's up with that last part? Like, here he says, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. What does that mean? Why did Paul tack that on the end? I never really understood that. Well, there is a reason that's there, and that reason is what's fleshed out in Romans 9 through 11. Paul needed to explain why the gospel is to the Jew first and then also to the Greek and what in the world that means for us today. But he explains all this in kind of a unique way. He does it by defending the character of God. 
throughout this section, he poses these objections, these arguments against God's character, and he defends God by demonstrating how God's character is actually upheld in the very gospel message he proclaims. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to break this all down with a quick flyover of Romans 9 through 11. We're going to do a lot of page turn in our Bibles. And along the way, I want to show you three things we learn about God and who he is in this section and how it impacts us today. So look with me first at Romans chapter 9 where we see that God is faithful. If you see in your Bible that first paragraph, those first five verses, Paul introduces this whole section by telling us there's a problem. Here's the problem. The Jewish people, his people, had rejected Jesus. This was a big deal for two reasons. For starters, this was a big deal because these were Paul's people. This was his friends. This was his family. They'd rejected Jesus. But on the other hand, this was a big deal because we saw the gospel was to the Jew first. What does that mean? What does it mean the gospel was to the Jew first? Well, Paul explains right here at the beginning of Romans 9. The Jewish people, they were God's chosen nation. They were Israelites. And God made a covenant with them in the Old Testament. He made promises to them. He gave them his law. And down through their bloodline came all the people we know about, the patriarchs, the prophets, and most importantly, Jesus himself. We even see in the ministry of Jesus and Paul that they gave priority to taking the gospel to the Jews first. Jesus said in Matthew 15, 24, he said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus came as a Jewish man to Jewish people. That's what Paul meant by to the Jew first. So this great message of salvation had come to the Jewish people. They were the first ones to ever hear it, and yet, for the most part, they had rejected it. They crucified Jesus. They persecuted the church. And to this very day, most Jewish people do not acknowledge Jesus as their Messiah. So people wondered, how could this have happened? Did God break his promises? Did he, did he give up on Israel? If he gave up on them, will he give up on us too? That was the first objection to this gospel message. They said, hey, this isn't much of a message of salvation because it hasn't saved the very people who heard it first. Here's where Paul begins to answer that objection. This is a big verse, Romans 9, verse 6. Paul says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. God's word has not failed. He's not broken his promises. Here's why. He never promised to save every single Israelite. Just because he chose them as a nation, just because he made a covenant with them, just because he brought Jesus from them, that did not give them some kind of leg up on everyone else. That's what Romans 2 and 3 were all about. We saw that the Jewish people, they thought that because they were Jews, because they'd been circumcised and had received the law, that they were exempt from God's judgment. They thought they could presume on God and, and sin against him and still somehow end up being saved. Paul says, no, no, no. Not all who make up the nation of Israel belong to the true Israel, the people of God. Well, then who are the people of God? Well, it's the people we saw who God chose to receive his promise and who in turn believed in him in faith. And he, to make this point, he goes all the way, way back to the very first guy, a guy by the name of Abraham. God chose to reveal himself to Abraham, and he promised him that from his descendants would come a great, mighty nation. But why did God choose Abraham? Was it because he was the best guy around? Or because of his ethnicity, or how he looked, or his potential? No, Genesis simply says that 
God gave Abraham a promise. Abraham believed the promise, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Next, from Abraham, that promised son that came miraculously, miraculously to he and Sarah was named Isaac. He was the child of promise. He was the next in line of the people of God. But that's because he was Abraham's son, right? Well, no. Remember, we saw Ishmael was also Abraham's son, but he was not a part of the people of God. Then from Isaac came Jacob. He was the next one in line of the people of God. Well, that's because he was related to Abraham, right? Well, no. Remember, he had a twin named Esau. And even more, Jacob was the second born, which would have made him less important in this time than his brother. And yet he's chosen. Here's where Paul pauses his argument and makes clear this pattern that we're seeing. This this whole plan of salvation, this whole group of people, it's not about race or ethnicity or who you know or how good you are or who's the most likely to succeed. Here's what it's all about. Look at this last part of verse 11 in chapter 9. It's in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls You'll remember we talked a lot about how people get really hung up on that word election. But here's what we miss. We miss the purpose of election. God's predestination, his election, is, it's not really up for debate. It's a clear concept in the Bible. Everyone from Methodists to Presbyterians to Baptists acknowledge it. No one debates that it's there. It's something taught. Rather, we, we debate about the who, the how, the when. So, yeah, there, there's a lot of disagreement surrounding election, lots to think about. But I believe the why of election is clear. Why did God elect or choose Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so on down the line? Paul tells us it wasn't because of works. Election is not something that is earned. Rather, it's because of God who calls. So the purpose of election, the why, is that God might receive the glory and the credit for salvation, not man that God's sovereign plan might be accomplished throughout history. And it's clear from Genesis to Revelation, God has this clear plan. He's not just winging it. He's not drawing it up as he goes. Rather, he's accomplishing something that he set out to do before the world had even been created. And that plan was to save his people by sending his son Jesus to rescue them that they might be with him forever. And he has been faithful to do that, and he always will. That's Romans 9. God is faithful. And he goes on the rest of the chapter to explain how this plan of salvation included Jews and Gentiles both. The Old Testament predicted that would happen. The Roman church saw its fulfillment in the first century. So God is a faithful God because he sovereignly chooses to save his people. But wait a second. I object. I mean, all this talk about God's plan and God's election and God's sovereignty makes it sound like we have no part in this. Like we're just pawns in some cosmic chess game. What about my friends, my my family? These are real people who are really lost, and I'm really worried about them. How can they be saved? What does this mean? Well, that's where chapter 10 came in. And Paul shows us that God is fair. Think back with me to that phrase from Romans 1.16, to the Jew first, then to the Greek That whole phrase would have really kind of messed up the early church. Jews and Gentiles both would have been stunned when they heard that. Let's imagine for a second Gentile Joe. Gentile Joe, he would have been sitting there in church that day. He would have heard to the Jew first, that phrase. And he would have thought, wait a second. Those Jews, they killed Jesus. They rejected him. Why are they first? 
They gave up their right to be God's people. They don't deserve his love. Let's forget about those Jews and move on to everybody else. Let's imagine Jewish Jim. Jewish Jim was sitting out there that day, and he heard also to the Greek. And he would have thought, hang on a second. Those guys get the same salvation we do? They're unclean. They don't know God. They don't practice the Sabbath and the other laws. If anything, those guys should be second-class Christians because we are God's true people. So with that one little phrase, Paul humbled both groups in the Roman church. To the Gentiles, he reminded them that their faith had Jewish roots. That the gospel began with the nation of Israel, and the very man they claimed to worship was a Jew. So there was no room for Gentile haughtiness or anti-Semitism or pride on their part. To the Jews, he reminded them that God never wanted to save just one kind, one ethnicity of people. He promised Abraham that he would bless all the nations of the world. So there was no room for ethnic superiority or, or favoritism or pride on their part either. God had been and still is completely fair. See, because all have sinned and all need salvation, then all must come to God in the same way, and that's only through Jesus. Look at Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 13. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He says, look, there's no distinction with God. He's not playing to this group or to that group. God is fair because he will save anyone and everyone who calls on him. And yeah, he's sovereign. He has a purpose of election, but God is fair because we still have a responsibility to believe with our hearts and confess with our mouths. Whosoever believes will be saved, and that's true for anyone. How does that fit together? You remember when we spent a week wrestling with that idea of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility? And we said, look, we don't know how it all fits together. We established there's a mystery here. After all the study and discussion and debate, at some point we just have to shut our mouth and accept what we cannot know. But here's what we can know without a doubt about it. I don't care what your denomination, affiliation, or hesitation is. This much is abundantly clear, Romans 10, 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you believe that, say amen. amen. Glad it's not just me. With that comes something else that's abundantly clear. People will not believe in the gospel unless we tell them about the gospel. So Paul says in verse 15, he says, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Do you remember talking about the beautiful feet? There's some nimcompoops out there. Yes, I said nimcompoops. Who believe that because God is sovereign, because God has it all figured out, we don't need to tell people about Jesus we don't even need to do missions. God's going to take care of it. Listen, Romans 10 would like to have a word with those folks because that's a bunch of nonsense. God's fairness means he will save all who call on him. And that availability of the gospel is what should motivate us to take the gospel to everyone everywhere. That's Romans 10. But hang on just a minute. I object again. 
I see that God has been faithful in the past, and I see that God has been fair even in the present. But what is he going to do in the future? How's he going to fix this? I mean, you still haven't explained how God will keep all those promises to a nation who's rejected him. That's where chapter 11 came in. And we see that God is not finished. Look at Romans chapter 11, verse 1. Paul writes, I ask then, has God rejected his people? And what does he say? What's the response? Say it with me. By no means. That's the key question. Is God done with Israel? Paul says, no way. And he gives two reasons why God's not done with Israel. First off, he says, God's not done with Israel because they're still a remnant. Verse 5, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. So from the days of Abraham all the way up to Paul's day, even up to our day today, God has kept a remnant of Jewish people, the small group who believe. So the first reason we know God's not finished with Israel is because he always has and always will have Jewish people following Jesus. But there's another reason, a more mysterious reason that we know God's not done with Israel. It's that there's still a future salvation to come. God is going to honor his Old Testament promises to Israel by saving a large number of Jewish people sometime before Jesus comes back. We see this most clearly in Romans chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. Paul writes, lest you be wise in your own sight. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. Here's the mystery. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now we've learned those two words, all Israel, are hotly debated. There are a lot of opinions on what those words mean and how this is all going to play out. But look, let's just look at what is clear here. He tells us Israel right now is currently hardened. It doesn't mean Jewish people can't be saved because it's a partial hardening. This hardening will continue until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That means they will be hardened. It will not be removed until the last non-Jewish person is saved. That means I believe it's going to be at some point at the very end of history, right before the return of Christ. And it's at that moment, in that way, it says all Israel will be saved. So that's the future hope for Jewish people that one day, somehow, some way, I don't know all the details, many of them will wake up and they will turn to Jesus and they will be saved. So this shows us clearly God is not done yet. His plan is not finished. In fact, the best is still to come for those who trust in Christ. That's chapter 11. As Paul concludes his argument about Israel. But I still have one more objection. Paul, what does this mean for us today? And we live 2,000 years later where the Jewish-Gentile distinction is no longer a big concern of ours. It's likely that not many of us in this room have a Jewish heritage And the rest of us, we don't think of ourselves as being Gentiles. We simply think of ourselves as Christians. So while this might make for a good debate and a fun thought exercise, what does this have to do with me and you today? Well, because God does not change, his character does not change. And that means Paul's defense of God in these chapters is just as true for us today as it was for the first century church. So let's take those three parts 
of Paul's argument, his defense of God. And let's look at it one more time from the perspective of us today really quickly. Here was the first one. Number one, God is faithful. Man, the faithfulness of God, his trustworthiness is the foundation of our whole relationship with him. Just as it's the foundation of of every relationship. We know that's true in marriage. Nothing destroys a marriage like unfaithfulness. Now, we know it's possible even after a spouse is unfaithful to rebuild a relationship, to earn trust back. God can restore anything. But those of you who have experienced that personally or you've watched it happen with someone else you know, then you know the damage unfaithfulness can do. When someone makes a vow or a commitment, they put their word on the line, and then they break that commitment. When someone does that, you then begin to wonder if you can trust anything else they say. You question their motives. You lose confidence in the relationship. See, we understand faithfulness is the bedrock of a relationship. The ability to trust someone is the foundation of an intimate connection with another person. And the same thing is true with God. Look, if we're going to have a growing, thriving relationship with God, we have to be able to trust in him. We have to be able to take him at his word and know without a doubt that it's true. This is why most times when people walk away from the faith, it starts with doubting God's word. I have watched this happen so many times it makes me sick. A person starts with questioning the Bible and its accuracy. They begin to listen to the world and some of the things that are more popular or more acceptable to society. Then they begin to doubt God's clear teaching on some hot-button issues like sexuality or gender or the reality of hell. And that ball of doubt begins to, to roll down the hill until it hits the bottom and they reject faith completely. It doesn't always end this way. But again, in my experience, I've seen this up close. When you doubt God's faithfulness, particularly what he's revealed clearly in his word, you lose trust. And eventually you lose any semblance of a relationship. That means we have to decide for ourselves today. Is God faithful? Does God keep his word Will he remain committed to what he said he would do? And as Paul has shown us, and as I've come to believe for myself, and as many other believers have trusted in throughout history, yes, we have a faithful God. And this truth of God's faithfulness is not just something we can sing about on Sunday morning, but it's something we got to believe in when our feet hit the carpet on Monday. When you get up tomorrow morning and you go to work, or you begin to care for your family, or whatever it is you do, whether or not you know and believe in the faithfulness of God is going to impact your day. Trusting in God's faithfulness will make a difference. If you do that, you'll have joy knowing God's goodness to you. You'll have peace when things get crazy. And you'll have purpose knowing that God's past faithfulness means he's still working today. You will know that you can trust him. That's first. God is faithful. Here's the second defense of God that Paul gave us. Number two, God is fair. One of the big themes of this whole book is God's fairness and how he treats Jews and Gentiles and all people. 
because of the diversity in this early Roman church, because of the conflicts that were taking place, he wanted them to see that the gospel's for everyone, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that God works all things together for the good of those who love him, and that all who call on his name will be saved. And again, this is not some abstract thought that stays up here. This attribute of God, his fairness, impacts how we live. When your feet hit the carpet on Monday morning, knowing that you have a God who is fair, who does not practice partiality, will make a difference in your life. When trials come your way, you'll know that God's not picking on you. He's not punishing you. Because you're a chosen son or daughter, a co-heir with Christ, you know that God loves you immeasurably more than you can imagine. When you doubt God's plan and purpose in something and you wonder, God, why? Why this? Why now? Knowing God's fairness will remind you that he works for the good of all those who trust in him. And when you feel distant from God and you wonder where he is, you'll recognize that God does not love you less than he loves those better Christians. No matter your past, no matter your struggles, and even no matter your feelings, he loves you just as much as he loves his own son. And that's a lot. God's fairness provides us with a confidence that God is not arbitrary or haphazard, but he is carefully crafting your story, and he will not waste a single moment of your life. But everything God does is good and will end in good for those who know him. That's second. God is fair. Here's the third and last thing Paul gives us. Number three, God is not finished. I can't tell you how many different points in my life I've wanted to just give up. As a young teenage Christian thinking, man, what am I supposed to be doing with my life? As a youth pastor thinking, is my ministry making any difference with these crazy kids? As a new dad thinking, man, does, does this get any easier? And there's so many times I've, I've naively thought, man, how could God bring anything good out of this mess? Or I've even said, well, it's not getting any better. I might as well just hang it up. Now, looking back, I bet a lot of you can do this too. I can see God's sovereign hand working in ways I had no clue at the time. I see what he was doing, what he was teaching me. I see how he was making me more like Jesus. I love this quote from John Piper. He said, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. I can't tell you how true that is. So now when my feet hit the carpet on Monday morning, I can remind myself every day, regardless of how I'm feeling that particular morning, regardless of what is going on in my life, I can know that God is not finished. That this chapter of my life will not be the end of the book. That this season will not be forever. And that this mess may turn into God's greatest work in my life. See, just as God was working and is still working in the nation of Israel today, he's still working with us. Just as he promised to do something great in the future for Israel, he promised he will do something great for us too. No, he probably won't fulfill all our hopes and dreams. And guess what? That's a good thing. Because what he will do will be infinitely better. And when we get to eternity and we stand in a new heaven and a new earth and we see Jesus face to face, 
it'll all make sense some way, somehow. So the question today, between today and that future day, is this. Will you trust him? I mean, that's really the whole of the Christian life right there. Will you trust in God? When it doesn't make sense, when you don't understand, will you trust God in the mystery? When it hurts, when you're upset, will you trust God in the pain? When you can't see a way out, when you think you've just completely blown it, will you trust God with your future? Will you trust that God is faithful and fair and never finished? That's the response we need to take from Romans 9 through 11. And that's the response we need, especially tomorrow morning as our feet hit the carpet. Will you trust him? Let's go to the Lord now in prayer.